0: Thanks to Airbnb for sponsoring this episode of Motley Fool Answers. Whether you're looking for some side cash or a steady income, hosting an Airbnb might just be the best investment you haven't made yet. Go to Airbnb.com fool to start hosting and learn about a $100 Amazon gift card offer for our listeners. Terms and conditions apply. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick. and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, everybody! It's the February mailbag episode! Thanks to Motley Fool analyst Emily Flippen, we're going to answer your questions about when to sell stocks, income-producing investments, mutual fund expenses, and more. All that and (laughs) more. This never works out. I stumble over that every time. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, fans of Rule Breaker Investing podcast are going to know our special guest today, but uh, those of you who only listen to Answers and you're pretty cool if you if you do. We 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 love you. We love you the best because you love us the best. Uh, You don't know Emily Flippin, and and so she's an analyst at the Motley Fool, and she's going to help us answer your mailbag questions today. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be
1: here. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be at the Motley Fool? Sure. I mean, it's a long story, right? Isn't it always? Um, I actually came from an internship, though. So, I did an internship in the summer 2016 on the investing team, and I was just hooked. So, I'm really happy to be here full-time. And those of you who are not listening to the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast, you should get on that.
2: <laughs> it is rather good, I have to say.
1: Um, before you came
0: to The Fool, though, you worked in Ch- Am I remembering this right? That you worked in China? you specialized in China?
1: China. I would like to say I did both those things. I went to school in China, so I did my undergrad in China, uh, and then I worked in Connecticut before coming here. Great. Well, we're happy that you are here with us today. Should we get into the questions? Let's
0: do it. All right. First one is going to Bro. Comes from Catherine. My husband and I are theoretically ready to retire, meaning we have the savings, but it's mostly all in retirement accounts. Since he's only 57 and can't withdraw from these accounts for two and a half years without penalty, and I'm five years younger than he is, we are looking at a home equity line of credit to pay for our living expenses during the two and a half year gap. At 59 and a half, he would pay back the line of credit with money from his 401k can you suggest resources for finding a good home equity line of credit?" Bro, what do you think? Uh,
2: Well, first of all, Catherine and her husband are retiring early, technically, so congratulations Congratulations. on that. Um, As I often tell people, right before you retire, you should see a qualified fee-only financial planner just to get that second opinion. Make sure you do have enough to retire. Um, The other thing that's important to know is, there are some ways to get money out of retirement accounts before age 59 and a half without paying that penalty. So, I would look into those first before you do the home equity line of credit. So, first of all, probably the one that's most applicable to you is something called substantially equal periodic payments, otherwise known as 72T. It's very complicated, look it up, but it basically, you commit to taking out a specific amount from your accounts each year for five years, but then you don't have to pay the penalty. So, definitely look into that. The other thing is that in many cases, you can take money out of your 401k at age 55, but just from the 401k from the job you just retired from. So, not a 401k from an old job, but from the current one. But check with your plan, you might be able to take the money out at age 55. And then there's one we often point out, and that is contributions to Roth IRAs can come out tax and penalty free anytime. So, I would look into that first before considering any sort of home equity. If you're going to go that way, just know that nowadays, the rate on a home equity line of credit, and that's the way to go, by the way. Home equity loan is just a big lump sum. I would go with the line of credit, which you basically draw on it as you need it. The rates are like 55 to 7%. So, I would say that's middle range, that's not low. And because you're not using it to improve your house, the interest is not tax deductible. Something to keep in mind. In terms of finding the loan, there are plenty of places that will have help you locate the best rate, like bank rate and other websites like that. The, I would say the most important thing besides the interest rate to pay attention to is the upfront cost. Some home equity loans, it's basically like, like getting a mortgage. you have to pay for the appraisal and the credit check and all that stuff, which can add like hundreds if not thousands of dollars to the cost of the loan. Some will waive all those, so you want to look for someone who is doing that. You want to look for anyone that's not going to charge you any ongoing fees, and you want to know when the rate adjusts, because most home equity loans have adjustable rates. And the final thing is, if you do this route where you borrow money, basically you're borrowing two years' worth of living expenses, then you, retire, you get to age 59 and a half, and you're going to pay all that out of your 401 k you're going to withdraw a large amount of your 401 k and that's probably going to drive you up a tax bracket or two, so be aware of those tax consequences.
0: Alright, let's move on to the next question, and this comes from Blue Max.
2: That's the name, what can I say?
0: On the Motley Fool Money podcast, someone asked whether they should sell some shares of Amazon.com because it was 20% of their portfolio. My question is, instead of selling, why can't I just keep adding to other positions in my portfolio until Amazon is well below 20%? Since we all want to invest the Foolish way, that is, long term, and that was there, there were That's that many the O's, running, yeah. <laughs> not my own emphasis <laughs> added.
1: Why sell the stock at all? Well, it's such a good problem to have. Yeah. And I think if any investor was capable of just adding a ton to all their other positions so that Amazon was suddenly less as a percent of their portfolio, of course, that's the better option. I mean, you always want more money in the market. But I think the vast majority of investors who find themselves in a position where, oh no, they look down at their portfolio and one stock has appreciated so much that it's a much larger percent than they're comfortable with, then have to struggle with, okay, I don't have any extra money I need to put in. so maybe I should sell some of this to further diversify my portfolio. I think ultimately it's a personal decision. There's definitely added risk when you have one stock that's a large portion of your portfolio. And if you're able to add to all your other positions, of course, that's a great idea. Do that. Diversify via adding more money to your portfolio. But if not, there's some value in in diversifying and making sure that you haven't added the extra risk of having a lot of your net worth in one or two stocks.
2: Yeah. And this doesn't apply to Amazon because it doesn't pay a dividend. But if this were a dividend-paying stock, certainly one other thing to consider would be to not reinvest the dividends. Instead, let them accumulate in cash and then buy other stocks to rebalance your portfolio.
0: Next question comes from Cody. I took your advice on FI. Financial independence, and now I'm going to RE, retire early. That being said, I'm moving overseas to do it. Southeast Asia has a low cost of living, some places have great healthcare, the food is amazing, and wow, the beaches. I'm just trying to understand tax implications. I will be in my mid-40s and plan to take a bunch of cash and move it into an index fund and other funds. For simplicity, let's say I'm starting with $1 million in cash. I plan to dollar-cost average the million over a couple of years before I head to my Southeast Asian retreat. I then need $50,000 for my new comfy lifestyle. Each year when I withdraw that 750 grand, will I need to be specific about which shares I sell? If I understand correctly, I will still be paying capital gains tax and Possibly federal income tax or not if this falls into the foreign earned income exclusion. My fuzzy math says it does not matter which shares I sell, but there is a tickle in my brain that says I don't know what I am talking about. <laughs>
2: <laughs> always pay attention to that tickle. That's always my rule of thumb. Yeah. Um, so, Cody, you said um, you opened up by saying I took your advice to retire early. I would say we've never really advised that. I wouldn't advise against it. I would just say. You definitely want to make sure if you're going to make do that step that you have saved up enough to pay for your lifestyle. And based on the scenario, scenario you laid out, you're saying that you have a million dollars and you're going to withdraw fifty thousand. That's a five percent withdrawal rate. That's pretty high. Even the, the the standard denizens of the FIRE community, financial independence retire early, use the four percent rule. Uh, and as we have discussed, and we'll discuss again in a future episode with an expert on this. 4% is actually pretty aggressive for those who are retiring young. So, I would say, you, if that is really your situation, you might want to wait a little bit uh, and save up some more before you retire early. Now, your question was about taxes. The situation is, if you are a U.S. citizen, you owe taxes regardless of where you live. You will be paying capital gains taxes, taxes on dividends, taxes on interest. Unfortunately, you will not be able to take the foreign earned income exclusion because that only applies to getting a paycheck overseas, mm-hmm. it does not apply to passive income or something you get from your portfolio. Now, when it comes to when you decide which shares to sell, it definitely makes sense to identify them, but for tax purposes. So You're saying that you're going to dollar cost average over two years. Every time you move money in, you're buying at a different cost basis. And if you're reinvesting the dividends, when those reinvest, you'll get a new cost basis. It definitely makes sense to look at your tax situation every time you want to sell something and say, let's say you're in a year where you have high income, then you want to choose shares that have a higher cost basis to limit your tax liability. If you're in a year where you actually don't have a lot of income, you're in a lower tax bracket, then you might want to bite the tax bullet and buy something with a lower cost basis. Someone won't have that you can basically, you're dividing the tax bullet when you're at a lower tax rate. So it definitely makes sense to do this. I should also add, this is all about money that's outside of a 401k or an IRA. If this is all in a 401k or an IRA, it really doesn't matter. Whenever you take the money out, you'll pay the taxes unless it's a Roth.
1: And I'll just add that depending on where somebody plans to retire, they're likely also going to be paying taxes in that country. Uh, America is one of the few countries that double taxes their expats, Uh, so it's important to remember that a lot of the cost savings that can be associated with retiring outside of the country are are kind of counteracted by the higher taxes, relatively higher taxes you'd be paying.
0: All right. next question comes from Chad. I've been investing money for the last 12 years for the purpose of a family trip scheduled this summer after our oldest child graduates from high school. My question is, when should money be removed from the market? If the best practice is to not invest money needed in the next five years, should I have stopped investing five years ago and kept that money in a low-risk savings account? I kept investing and am now ready to sell some stock to finance the trip. Unfortunately, the due date of the down payment last December coincided with the biggest my market drop in several years. Of course, it did. I have toyed with the idea of pulling the balance out now to keep it safe, even though it isn't due until the beginning of April. Right now, I'm planning to leave it there until I need to pull it out. But I'm curious your thoughts on the timing of the withdrawals. Oh man, Chad, I hope you didn't send us this question like a really, really long time ago, and we're just now getting to it with a couple months out. But okay.
1: Yeah, so unfortunately, Chad, I think it's a great example of the fact that you are supposed to move your assets from risky assets to less risky assets as you get closer to the date that you need them, so you don't accidentally need a lump sum of money that you have to withdraw when the market is significantly down. And a lot of this for people who retire can be done via a laddering approach. But when you're saving for something that maybe is more than five years out, I think keeping that in the market until you reach that three or five-year mark is probably okay. Once you start reaching that three year mark, you need to think about okay, how much money do I have? How much money do I need? And how much can this investment lose over the course of its life while I can still fund what I need to fund? And so, if you have $3,000 three years before, you need $3,000. Put that into maybe a less risky asset. It's also important to note that if you invest that money, especially in a taxable account, you're going to be paying taxes on the money that you withdraw as well. So, you know, you can be. Kind of aware of the fact that some of these investing um, avenues will create less of a tax liability at your time of withdrawal. But generally speaking, the Motley Fool doesn't really recommend to keep money in the market that you'll need within, you know, earlier than three years, maybe up to five years.
2: Yeah. I would like to commend Chad, by the way, because he's been saving for twelve that's years amazing. for a family amazing. vacation. Yep. So I that, want to
1: hear all about this vacation.
2: <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Uh, right. Most so, people
1: don't have that discipline. Mm-mm. No,
2: so it is impressive. So I just looked up the basically the historical odds over different time periods when stocks made money. So on a daily basis, stocks make money about fifty-five percent of the time. So on a day-to-day basis, it's it's a little better than a coin flip. Mm. Once you move out to one year, it's Seventy-five percent of time, so one out of every four years. Once you move to five years, it's eighty-five percent, and ten years, ninety-five percent. So, whenever I say you know how much you should have out of the market, I always say three to five years because for some people, five years makes a lot of sense. For a lot of other people, especially a lot of fools, that's far too conservative, and they're very comfortable with even waiting until they need the money a year from now. And of course, it doesn't have to be an an either all situations, right? So you could have some of it in the market and some out. But the safe thing to do is what Emily said and that is if you need it in the next few years, keep it in cash or something like that.
0: Yeah, I remember when we were for the last I don't know how many many, many years thing like, oh we're gonna buy a new house, we're gonna buy a new house, when the new house you know, we just need that wait for that new house to come along. And if we'd pulled our money out back when we thought we were gonna buy a new house, oh my gosh, it would have been out of the market for like eight years. Yeah. So it's 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 tough. It's a it's tough timing that. All right. Next one comes from Aaron. I want to know how my funds have performed taking the fees into account. Can you tell me the best place to look for this? My active fund has produced an 18% annualized return over the past 10 years with a 0.85 expense ratio, while my S&P 500 index fund has produced 14% a year at 0.04. Am I really paying 20 times as much for the active fund? Does the growth of $10,000 graphics on Morningstar account for fees? Thank you for every episode, and double thanks for the Southern Lawyer voice." <laughs> Be obsessingly yours.
2: You want to explain the Southern Lawyer voice? Oh,
0: I do declare. It's been a while since I've we've done those. Episodes. Judge Bro episodes. Yeah, yeah, we had a string of episodes where they just kind of went off the rails. Where I was presenting different um, case, court cases, showing
2: your talents. I think is what you my mean voice to say. talent. Yeah, yes. and so
0: one of my character, one of my lawyers that was presenting the case was the genteel southern lawyer. Um, <laughs> gosh, it's been it's been a while. <laughs> Things used to get really weird around here.
2: Yes. Anyway, so back to the question. Mm-hmm. So most of the expenses. That come from running a mutual fund are captured in what is known as the expense ratio. You can look that up on any fund that you have on Morningstar or in your 401k. It always expresses that. And the vast majority of times, any performance numbers you see incorporate the expense ratio. In other words, it's an after fee performance number. So that is reflected in those numbers as well as those growth of ten thousand graphics you see on Morningstar or anywhere else. However, there are other costs that are not captured by the expense ratio. For example, loads, which are upfront, commissions are not captured in that, or any transaction fees. So sometimes if you're on a discount brokerage platform and you want to buy a fund, some of them are don't charge transaction fees, some do. So that's not a, factored in there. The other cost is the, the commissions that the fund, pays, the fund pays to buy and sell investments that is not in the expense ratio and the late great john bogle calculated that that adds about 0.5% to the costs of wow. funds on average but it depends you can you can that's not expressed in the expense ratio you kind of have to dig through their filings to find that but you can sort of approximate it by the turnover ratio which is basically how much the fund trades throughout the year the average actively, actively managed fund trades as a turnover ratio of 90% which basically means over the course of the year, about 90% of its holdings have been rearranged. Mm. Compare that to the Vanguard 500 with a turnover ratio of 3%. So, not only are you paying a lower expense ratio with index funds, you're also paying lower internal costs that you don't see. That said, he has an actively managed fund that has significantly outperformed the S&P 500. I'd want to know more about that fund to to make sure we're doing an apples-to-apples comparison, but that's still pretty encouraging. And an 8.85 expense ratio is about average, so it's not outrageous for a good actively managed fund.
0: Alright, next question comes from Brian. I'm 35 years old and contribute 15% of my income to my 401 k and they match $0.50 cents on the dollar up to 6%. I will be a few thousand dollars shy of the $19,000 contribution limit. I also invest in a Roth IRA and I use what I learned from The Fool to invest in single stocks as I find it extremely interesting and fun. Yay! That's why we're here. That's right. I have read mixed reviews about using Roth retirement accounts. People say that it depends on what tax bracket you will be in during retirement, but since retirement is not for a while, how would I know this? Since I'm on the younger side, is this okay? Should I just max out my employer 401 k to get the tax benefits, or just do a normal IRA so I can invest in the single stocks I want?
1: I'm sure you all get this question all the time. We do. Uh, but you know, I'm a bit of a Roth IRA junkie, so I can't help but answer it. And one of the things that so, we need to put that so, for you. so many Roth IRA so, junkies. Oh man,
0: there are dozens of us.
1: <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the thing that drives me insane about other Roth IRA junkies and why I'm the best <laughs> Roth IRA junkie. See, people don't understand that it doesn't matter what age you are. Mathematically speaking, the only thing that matters in the Roth versus traditional debate is your tax bracket now versus the tax bracket that you think you'll be in in retirement. Nobody knows that, and kind of like you know what you mentioned, Brian. Nobody knows what your tax rate's going to be in retirement. What we can do is we can think about two things. Well, Historical tax rates. I think a lot of people are looking at the tax rates now and thinking, they're historically low, so yeah. maybe I should go ahead and bank on those tax savings now, because I can't guarantee that in the future I will have those same tax savings. But the flip side of that is, if you're working, you're probably going to be making more money than you are in retirement. So, all else equal, typically you're better off going with a traditional IRA or traditional savings. doesn't really matter what venue in which you do it, uh, but traditional savings versus Roth savings. So, us being human, us having no clue what the government's going to do in the future, I think it's probably advisable to have a mix of both then the conversation comes to your earning potential. Are you at the lower tier of your earning potential, or are you making tons of money and you don't expect to make that money in the future? If you're at the lower tier, probably best to do Roth. Higher tier, probably best to do traditional. It does not matter what your age is. If you are a 22-year-old making $1 million who expects to make nothing 40 to 50, then you know what? Do traditional. Yep. Don't pay taxes on that $1 million. Right. Um, So I just wanted to clear that misconception up and say, yeah, Ultimately, for making that decision, it's probably best to do some type of combination, but it really comes down to what an individual perceives about their current tax situation and their future tax situation.
2: Yeah, it's very tough to know what future tax rates will be. Impossible. Think, impossible. So getting that tax diversification by maybe going with the traditional 401 k, but then the Roth IRA makes a lot of sense. Um, I think one reason why people will say the Roth is better for young people is that it's implied that younger people aren't in a high tax bracket, but you make the important point that some are. If you're in a high tax bracket, maybe the traditional makes more sense. Mm -hmm. And as always, there are a couple other benefits of the Roth IRA. One I already mentioned, that is, it's easier to get the money before age 59 and a half because you can get the contributions out tax penalty free. And also, there are no required minimum distributions at age 70 and a half for a Roth IRA. So, you can let that money grow longer.
0: Thanks to Airbnb for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Whether you're looking for some side cash or steady income, hosting an Airbnb might just be the best investment you haven't made yet. Worried about your property? Well, Airbnb offers a host guarantee that helps protect your property in the unlikely event that something goes wrong. It's free to list your home and you're the boss when you host on Airbnb. Host when you want, how you want, list one bedroom, or the entire place. It's all up to you. You're in control. Availability, prices, house rules, guest interactions, all your decisions. Airbnb helps keep you protected with a team available 24-7 to help with any issues, whether that's rebooking assistance, refunds, or their $1 million host guarantee. For listeners of this show, go to airbnb.com fool to start hosting and you'll receive a $100 Amazon gift card if you generate $500 in booking value by May 30. Terms and conditions apply. Again, receive a $100 Amazon gift card if you generate $500 in booking value by May 30 by going to slash fool and start hosting.
2: I'm gonna write words oh so sweet. They're gonna knock me off my feet. A lot of kisses on the bottom.
0: All right. Next question comes from oh another Brian. Here we go. My wife and I are in our mid-thirties and are a few months away from paying off our house. Our next financial goal is to augment our retirement savings with a passive income stream so that we have more options later in life. I currently receive roughly thirteen thousand dollars in dividends annually, so we're off to a good start. Real estate seems to be popular, according to or particularly in the fire community, but I'm leaning towards truly passive income, i.e., not landlording. My thought is a combination of investments in real estate investment trusts, REITs, funds of dividend paying stocks, and bond funds. Do you have any suggestions to this approach?
2: Well, as an income generating portfolio, I love that combination. In fact, it's very similar to the Fool's Total Income Service, on which I'm a co-advisor. So, I like the idea. So, Just make sure we're all on the same page. Real estate investment trusts are stocks that invest in properties, all kinds of properties. Office buildings, hospitals, malls, storage units, all kinds. And the reason that they produce a good amount of income is they are required to distribute 90% of their net income. So, that makes them much higher yielding, Than most other stocks. So, for example, right now the S&P 500 is yielding about 1.8%. The Vanguard REIT ETF is yielding about 4.2%. So, that's good. And over the long term, when you look at their performance, they're very competitive with the S&P 500, but they're not highly correlated to the S&P 500, so it's a good diversifier to your portfolio. I like the idea of dividend-paying stocks and dividend-paying funds. The one drawback, I would say, is that if you focus just on stocks that pay dividends, you're going to be very focused on certain sectors, like financials, and you're going to exclude stocks like technology stocks that don't pay dividends, or even like Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon and Google and all these that are great companies but don't pay dividends. I would never recommend that anyone just invests in dividend-paying stocks. And then bond funds, very conservative, yielding around 3%. That's fine for money you need in the short-term. So, I think as an income-generating strategy, that's good. You did say, though, that you're in your mid-30s, so I don't know if you're suggesting that you're going to retire soon, but I would not necessarily recommend all of that if you're not going to retire for 30 years. If you're going to retire for 30 years, I would focus more on growth than income.
0: Alright, next question comes from Twitter, from What? Do ETF prices move based on demand like stocks, or do the movements of the individual stock affect the price of the ETF? I'm growing my position in the Motley Fool 100 ETF and was just wondering what happens to my money once it gets to Motley Fool Asset
1: Management. That's such a good question. And I think there is a fundamental misconception about how ETFs work in the market. I mean, people, I think, genuinely do not understand what an exchange traded fund is. And it's actually a combination of that explanation. So, at its base level, it moves based on demand. So it moves based on how much people are buying and selling the ETF. So that can make a lot of investors very scared because they're like, oh my gosh, what if it really drastically differs from the underlying assets? Well, there's this nice little thing called net asset value, NAV. So when you look at an ETF, you'll also see an NAV reported. And you might notice. That the stock or the price of the ETF is very similar to the NAV price; it should be almost exactly equal in a liquid market, and that's because people are going to trade based off the net as asset value of that ETF. So, essentially, ETFs. while I guess there is that added risk of demand for it, um, and it may be in an extremely illiquid, volatile market. You might see that NAV and price start to differ. Um, when you're trading in the U.S. with the vast majority of ETFs, you'll see that it trades very similar, similarly to its underlying assets, so the return that you're actually getting from the ETF doesn't so much depend on the demand for the ETF, it largely depends on the underlying asset prices, which are you know changing every day.
0: Alright, next question comes from Yair. I've been investing for the last three years along with you guys and realized how awesome investing is, albeit scary recently, and wish I had more cash to put into investing." Aw! Yet again, another (laughs) another letter that's telling us we're kind of doing our job here. Uh, My wife and I are in our early to mid-30s and have the bulk of our wealth tied up in our primary home. If that money were invested in the stock market or real estate, we would have been in a better financial state completely. We got an offer on our house, and I feel it would make more sense for us to rent anyway. The cash we'll have, if invested foolishly in a variety of Stock Advisor and Rule Breaker stocks, as well as invested in multiple real estate options we're already interested in, producing 13 to 15% internal rate of return, would be, in t- five to 10 years, a game-changer for us. Am I crazy?"
2: I would say no. He is not crazy. and, and now, I,
0: Emily is surprised yeah. by your answer!
2: <laughs> We have talked on the show before, and we will talk again, on how uh, home ownership is often not everything it's sold to be. If you look just at the historical returns of house home prices versus the stock market, stock market 10% a year, home prices about 1% above inflation when you factor in all the costs, maintenance, insurance, property taxes, and stuff like that. So. I would say you're not crazy to think of that. If you can free up some cash to invest elsewhere, and you're happy renting, um, I will say that investing in real estate does have advantages. Leverage, for example, I mean you can buy a $500,000 property by putting down 50 to $100,000, um, and there are other tax benefits that of investing in real estate that we're going to talk about in the next episode, and not all of them necessarily apply to just owning your primary home, per se. So, I think he's good to differentiate between those two. There's looking at your own home as an investment, which often doesn't pay off, versus being a real estate investor, which can pay off. So, I would say, if he's happy being a renter, you definitely have to look at comparables. right? Like, if you're paying $2,500 a month for your mortgage and rent is going to be $5,000 a month, then that's that's not something. But I think it totally could make sense. I would just make sure that your wife is also on board with this, because, boy, <laughs>
1: honey, we're moving. <laughs> we're
2: moving, and we will no longer own our home. Home ownership is a big source of discussion among married couples.
1: As, as well, it should be. As well, it should be. Can I flip that back on you, bro? Do you sure. own a home? I do. <laughs> okay, that's easy. See, it's easy for you to take that position. I'm gonna, I'm gonna argue. I think you have the same general point, but I'm a renter right now. I've had to move three times in the past year, and it is a pain. That being said, I'm a huge budgeter. I have run the numbers on homeownership, at least in this very expensive area. And every time it comes down to, how much do you think that house is going to appreciate over the term in which you're living in it? Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people, they, if they especially if they haven't rented for a long time, they forget how nice it is. The mindset of having a home, a place that is your own. So I think it's always important to when you look at finances to also remember the human side because there is a, a very psychological, you know, aspect at play when you own a home versus when you're a permanent renter and you're, you know, fifty or sixty years old.
2: <laughs> There's no question about it that one of the big benefits of having your own home is that is that your own home. There's a psychological one You can do whatever you want to it. You're never gonna be forced to move out unless you can't pay your bills or something like that. So there's no question there's a there's a very big emotional attachment to owning your own home, which for some people is worth the extra money.
1: Yep, and it is expensive.
2: And the hassle and the taxes mm-hmm. and the insurance <laughs> and
1: the <laughs> repairs. Oh, the
0: repairs. Oh, the gosh. house sinking in on itself. <laughs> so
2: <laughs> brutal. Transaction. Also costs. easy for me to
1: say as a renter then, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. pros and cons. There are pros and cons always is.
2: Yeah. I think there's a business opportunity for someone to just to be a per diem landlord that owners of houses can call. It's like,
1: oh, my my sink's dripping. Can you come fix it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that idea.
2: The super.com, you know? Yes.
0: Last question comes from Sarah. Here we go. I am a young federal employee, 23, and I religiously listen to your podcast. Thanks all. Wow, I wish I was 23 again and did some things over differently. You
2: don't. (laughs) Says the 23-year-old here.
0: I'm currently contributing 10% of my salary into a Roth TSP and receive a 5% match from my employer but your show has me thinking more about the allocation of the fund I'm in. I participate in the L2050 Lifecycle Fund most aligned with my retirement date. This fund allocates approximately 28% to the um, I Fund, which is international stocks, 11% to the G Fund, which is government bonds, 7% to the F Fund, which is fixed income, 40% to the C Fund, which is the S&P 500, and 13% to the S Fund, which is small caps. Because I'm relatively young, have a well established emergency fund, and high job security, I'm thinking that this allocation is too conservative for my preferences. I would be interested in 57 to C, 13 to S, and 30 to I, and nothing to G and F. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's funny. It just got me thinking of G and F and R, I guess. Uh, okay. But I noticed that the share price for the L2050 fund is $19.34, while the prices for the individual funds are significantly higher than the aggregated lifecycle fund. So the lifecycle fund has a significant discount per share compared to the funds that make it up. I'm wondering why the difference in price exists between the lifecycle fund and the individual funds. And with the significant differences in share price, do I lose the value of a more aggressive fund allocation with the reduced purchasing power of my contributions?
1: I just want to say I love this question because you know we're based near DC, the Motley Fool, and I think we all probably know way more about the TSP than any non-government worker deserves to know. Yep, so. <laughs> that, that
2: stands for the Thrift Savings Plan, by the way. That's like the 401K for federal employees.
1: Yeah, so I mean, this question, I think, you know, we have friends and family all working in the federal government, probably one that again we personally get a lot, and. You know, When you look at the life cycle funds, and I'll just talk generally about the TSP right now, you know, I, I tend to agree with you, Sarah. Granted, I am also young. Uh, sometimes target retirement date funds are just too conservative. Yeah. And the reason why they're too conservative is because they're aimed for the general populace. It's better to be a little bit more conservative when dealing with the general populace because you don't know the risk tolerances of everybody. So I think it's a great idea when people think about, hey, you know, the, this is a a great fund to be in if I don't want to ever have to think about my funds. But if you're somebody who is passionate about investing and finance, you probably want that little bit of upside in exchange for a little bit more risk. And so moving in away from the fixed income and you know the government bonds, that's that's probably a good move, especially when you are extremely young. That being said, you know it kind of goes back to that ETF question. The share price doesn't matter. Uh, the purchasing power of your money is the same. The Life Cycle 2050 fund consists of the same funds. That you'd be buying if you're buying them directly. And so your purchasing power, the amount of money you have invested, will change the same whether or not you have it invested in the 2050 fund or the C fund or the I fund or the S fund. As the, the stock price of the underlying assets move, so will your investments. The only thing you're really doing is moving away from fixed income and which will increase your risk, but hopefully increase your return as well.
2: And I think her allocation suggested is good. Uh, it might be a little low on small caps. She's she's putting thirteen percent to S. And generally, I recommend, especially for people who are younger, to be a little more aggressive with that. And again, Sarah, congratulations because you're yeah. first of all you're yeah. saving for retirement, you have your emergency fund, so you're in in solid shape. Um, and I'll just second what Emily said. The share price actually doesn't really matter. They come up with the share price for mutual funds, otherwise known as the net asset value. Basically, calculating the value of all the assets in the fund and dividing by the share price. And for some reason, there's this tendency in the mutual fund industry for when a fund comes out to have an NAV of $10. So they, they they sort of figure out how many assets they need to put in and how many shares for it to come at $10. That's what we did here at the Motley Fool with our mutual funds, and it's what they did with the 2050 fund when they issued it in 2011 they they basically just came up with accounting gimmicks to make sure it came out at $10 in NAV. I asked some folks why is that in the mutual fund industry and no one actually had a good answer other than <laughs> it seems like the traditional it's thing the way to do. We've
0: always been doing it. Right.
2: So I wouldn't focus too much on that. I do want to add to this though because we got another question about the TSP, but this one was from JD who is a listener who's been encouraging his 24-year-old grandson to save for retirement. Aww who is a staff sergeant in the U.S. Air Force and about to be deployed overseas, um, and he's trying to get him to save for retirement because um, JD wishes someone had done that for him when he was younger. So he got an email from uh, his grandson saying, I'm putting 5% of my paycheck into the TSB so I can get the government ma- government match of 5%, so saving of 10%, which, by the way, is a great savings rate if you're starting early in your career. And he's decided to split up his funds into 40%, the C fund, which is the S&P 500, Forty percent small caps, twenty percent international, and I think that's a pretty solid allocation. So great job to JD for encouraging his grandson, and good job for his grandson for choosing to take the advice, choosing what seems to be a pretty good allocation. So good luck to him as he's deployed overseas.
0: Uh, just a ton of A plus students today in the mailbag, huh? Yes, really impressive, you guys. Wow, you're you're. Putting all of us to shame. Yes. Maybe not Emily, but <laughs> <laughs>
2: you're putting me to shame.
0: All right. Should we move on to some listener feedback? Let's do it. All right. Uh, Blake on Twitter wants to know uh, he just finished the 2019 Luffy Awards episode, and I have two questions that relate to the 50, 30, 20. I didn't or warn you it? that I was. I think ask it was the 20, this.
2: 30, 50.
0: Okay. Well, here we go. It's time to just clear it up. Does the housing section just include rent and mortgage? And the other question relate to savings, does the 20% include 401k and our IRA savings in addition to money put into savings?
2: Yes. So first of all, 20, 30, 50 is just a budgeting rule of thumb. 20% for savings, 30% for housing, 50% for everything else. And it's all pre-tax, so it's not after-tax, but the 20% includes anything you're saving for the future. So it's IRAs, 401ks, Five twenty in college savings accounts, money you're putting to an emergency fund, anything like that, and then for the thirty percent for housing, it's all housing related costs: so taxes, insurance, utilities, all that type of stuff.
0: All right. Uh, so also on Twitter, Neil in Rockville. So we got a couple of people um, who are not a fan of Sean talking about getting married in our wedding episode, particularly uh, talking about his prenup. Uh, so, Neil wanted to know, I was wondering if Sean wrote his own vows and ended them with until retirement do us part. Oh. <laughs> particularly after his discussion on a prenup, you need to all reboot and have someone on who, with all due respect, has a clue about how to have a potentially successful marriage.
2: <laughs> I think he also talked uh, about a post-nup as so well. Good. <laughs>
0: Oh, that's so good! Yeah, Chip also emailed to say he did not love the marriage as a transaction portrayal from Sean. Uh, so yeah, I think I believe on the show Sean did say that this was going to be a controversial take with the prenup, but he was very Sean.
2: Kind of first of all, relishes in being somewhat controversial and he countercultural, does. and we and he met his wife here at the Motley Fool. I know them both. I'm sure they're very happy, and I'm sure they're going to be fine. Yeah. So, well, I <laughs> think it. I mean,
0: what is, like they say, they're like the first time marry for love, and the second, you know, whatever. The but the idea is that usually when you first get married, you're young and you don't have anything to protect. You don't have any any prenup is not going to help because you don't have anything. But if I were older and already had kids and had my own wealth, I would absolutely want a prenup if I got married a second time around just to protect my own. I think I would too. So, but we're not. We're not getting divorced anytime soon. No. 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 Nope. L- lock it down. <laughs> lock it down. <laughs> pick, a, pick a good, good egg to marry everybody. Yes. All right. Oh
2: my gosh, yes. So
0: on, uh, on a previous episode, we talked about acorns, and we said uh, if anyone out there has any experience with acorns, let us know what you think. Uh, and so Wendy responded and let us know that. Uh, her experience is that it's an easy on-ramp to investing and not at all scary. I started with an initial investment of $5 and enable rollovers, that's the spare change part, and I chose how aggressive I wanted my portfolio to be, and then I put away my phone. Set it and forget it. Easy! And she- she did forget all about it. Later, I took the step of adding monthly automatic transfers of $150 to my Acorn account and I applied a 5X multiplier to my rollovers. It was equally painless and I've never missed the money. In fact, I forgot that I did this and I was completely comfortable month to month. Now my Acorns account is worth just under three thousand dollars. I will sometimes take extra money at the end of the month and invest it as a one-time investment. I recommend Acorns to anyone who wants an easy way to begin investing. I like their interface, which shows past and present data along with future projections. Um, she also says that she uses it in tandem with the Empower app. Empower app, and these are two apps that help me manage my money pretty well. I don't know that one. I don't know it either. I don't know. All right. Well, thank you, Wendy, for sharing. For sharing that. Uh, Sean wants to know, and this is—I don't think this was meant as like a challenge but I still read it as one just because it's funnier that way. I was hoping to get some more information about Bro's certificate from K-State. <laughs> I'm sure it was actually meant as an honest inquiry and not as like a challenge. But anyway, I remember him talking about it, but I don't remember exactly what he got it in. Something like financial psychology or financial therapy. Um, there you go. What did finan- you get in?
2: It was financial therapy.
0: And what was the point of financial therapy?
2: So, uh, first of all, it recommends that financial decisions are often emotional decisions. And sometimes we are making um, poor decisions, either just not delaying gratification or it could be some sort of disordered thinking like being a shopaholic, being a compulsive gambler. um, Also addressing the issues with couples and making decisions like that. So it was very, very interesting. Uh, and there is if you're interested in finding a financial therapist in your area, go to the website of the Financial Therapy Association and put in your address. It's a relatively new uh, field, maybe about 10 years old, so not every state and locality has someone in the area, but more and more of them are able to work with people online in long distance.
0: Cool. Uh, Kim wrote in because she was concerned that I was taking the Theranos situation a little too light-heartedly. Mm. Well, your, bro is growling. Do you, you agree with <laughs> no, that? No, I think
2: because she was saying that we were people were chuckling, and that's usually me doing the chuckling. No, so. no.
0: Well, I just wanted to apologize if I sounded like I was joking too much. Um, if I was laughing, it was laughter of... Um, incredulity, I believe, that someone would have such little regard for human safety. Um, what Elizabeth Holmes did was absolutely horrible, and I hope she does serious time for it. So, yeah. um, Kim, I apologize if you felt I was being too lighthearted. Uh, we have some postcards here. Yay. So, our favorite swimmer, Jim, uh, sent in a card from Singapore. He says he's been living solely in hotels without a fixed income anymore because he saved up enough money, and nice. now he just travels all the time. Wow. Um, it's crazy, but fun. Come join me and do the show remotely. And then he put JK. And I'm like, I don't know. I wouldn't mind going to Singapore and do the show remotely. Uh, Jonathan from Indiana wrote that uh, he spent Christmas on the beach listening to all the Fool podcasts except answers um, because he listens to those the minute they are released. and loves the show. So there's a card from the Caymans. And here's one I feel bad about. It got lost in the mail here um, at the Fool, but it's the Christmas card from the Weaver family. Oh, my gosh. Look at those kids. Isn't that nice? Wow. i said that I love getting Christmas cards from our listeners, and so this one unfortunately got lost and I just discovered it, so yay! Um, I also, before we go, need to mention that we have a special guest behind the glass today, <laughs> and that's Christian! He was able to swing by Motley Fool Studios today and get a tour and sit on a taping. Do you want to say hi? Thank
2: you for having me! Great for you to be here! Yeah,
0: so we, um, we happened to stumble into each other at a local Bar essentially, <laughs> and so and now he's here. So it's so great to have you. All right, and the last thing is, I want to say happy birthday to Motley Fool Money. Yes, it's celebrating. this show is celebrating its tenth anniversary this week. And so, if you guys, that's of course the the podcast that started it all here at the Motley Fool. So if you aren't listening to Motley Fool Money yet, um, give it a listen and hooray and congrats, you guys. If it wasn't for Motley Fool Money, we wouldn't be here in Motley Fool Answers. So, all right. That's the show. It's edited flippantly. <laughs> <laughs> Wordplay. By Rick Engdahl. for Robert Brocamp and Emily Flippin. Thanks again for joining us. This was great it was having great. you guys. Of, of course. If you'll have me, if you're not scraping the bottom of the barrel. Oh my goodness. I can have all. you any day. Any day. All right. So, like I was saying, for Robert Brocamp <laughs> and Emily Flippin. Stay foolish, everybody.